scratching the surface of this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached uh, to, to the crowd at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Uh, this is, uh, I, I gave a little bit of background and kind of the, the setup of, of this sermon last week, this, the sermon that Jesus had. Uh, and uh, we are just really continuing that tonight. We looked uh, last week focusing mainly on the Beatitudes uh, which is what Jesus began with, and really setting up the uh, the expectations or the uh, the attitude of the church or uh, the people of the kingdom of God, and that's really what this whole sermon was about. From Jesus was presenting what it means to live within the kingdom of God. What does it mean? To be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus was introducing something new. When Jesus stepped onto the scene and in his ministry, he was presenting something that was a shift from what had come before. Now, we'll see in this uh, right here at the beginning that uh, it was not a departure from, but rather it was a fulfillment of everything that had come before. And uh, we'll, we'll look and see what that means. But Jesus, in uh, his ministry, was presenting a brand new way of life. A kingdom way of life. And it wasn't just for them 2,000 years ago. What Jesus was presenting, in a presenting a kingdom culture, being part of the kingdom of God, this is just as relevant for us today. I guess you don't think so, but it is. It's just as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was presenting this to them, sitting there on this mountain talking to all these people and telling them about the kingdom of God and telling them about what it means to, to live in, within the kingdom and be a citizen of the kingdom of God. We today are still called to be citizens of the kingdom of God. In fact, this is the commission of the church that we today are to be bringing thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the that's part of the prayer of the church that ought to be our desire to bring the kingdom of God into this earth and it will it will not be completely fulfilled until Jesus comes back and we see him reigning during the millennial reign. But it is our responsibility now to bring the kingdom of God through us, through us living out the kingdom of God and presenting that as a, a very counterculture type of life that we would live. Kingdom culture is counterculture. The, the culture of the kingdom of God is very counter to what the world, the way that the world would live. I don't know if I have anybody here with me tonight or not, but we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is where we are going to begin. Matthew chapter 5, let me get there real quick. Chapter 5, verse 17. Last week. Uh, we ended uh, with this, and I, I kind of 
quickly uh, quickly covered this, but being the salt uh, of the earth and the light of the world, uh, we're going to go here to verse 17. And Jesus says here, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, for I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we're going to stop there with that little section as Jesus is addressing um, addressing the law and, and really talking about the righteousness that uh, is expected, the righteous way of life that is expected within the kingdom of God. He undoubtedly within the crowds uh, had some scribes, some Pharisees or people of the religious order of that day that were present there. And uh, he was addressing in many ways some of the same things that these religious with the religious crowd of that day had been addressing with uh, with the people in their their weekly sermons uh, within the temple. And Jesus, here in uh, talking about the law that everything had been built upon, all, every sermon that anybody had ever heard is built upon the law of Moses. And Jesus also includes the prophets. He says, the law and the prophets, that's basically encompassing the entirety of the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying there is that the the law and the old prophet or the the law and the prophets or the old testament says i am not come to destroy it that's not why jesus came it was not to abolish it to do away with it he says i'm i'm not coming and, and and he must have this must have been a topic of conversation somewhat within the pharisees of that day that this guy I know he's early on in this ministry, but he seems to be doing things different and not upholding the law in the same way that we say the law needs to be upheld. In fact, we see one example that perhaps Jesus had been called out, uh, called out in this, in this manner. It was uh, not in Matthew, but it's, it's brought to us in the book of Mark that uh, really this takes place, in, at least as Mark presents it, even before Jesus has all 12 of his disciples that he has called. Uh, but he is there and he's, he's picking the corn on the Sabbath. And they say, ah, you can't do that. Don't you believe in the law? Don't you believe in the law of the Sabbath? And there's, there's these things that Jesus did that, uh, that brought questions about his ministry, about whether or not he, he was, uh, was an adherent to the law of Moses. Jesus says, I'm not coming to destroy the law. 
I'm not coming to, to do away with all of these things that, that all of your, your, uh, religiosity is built around. It says, rather, I'm going to fulfill the law. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus would say that I'm come to fulfill the law? That word fulfill, it's this, uh, this Greek word, plerosai, which means to fill. He's coming to fill the law. So Jesus came and through his ministry, he was drawing out and he was filling up the law that had come before him. Through the ministry of Jesus, the the very purpose of his ministry was to reveal the full depth of meaning that the law was ever, what it was intended to hold. Jesus was coming and, and taking all of this from the Old Testament, not saying let's do away with it all, but rather saying that this is all laid here as the principle and you're living this out in a manner of just obedience without having it in your heart. And you've gotten away from the principle of what what God had intended this to be. And I'm coming to reveal the fact that there's more meaning behind this than what you actually believe. He's, He's coming to draw out the full meaning of everything that was intended from the very beginning. And he's fulfilling the law by declaring these radical demands of the righteousness of God. He himself fulfilled the law of, uh, fulfilled the law of Moses and, and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled many of these through his ministry, but also he fulfilled or he filled it up by, by teaching them. And we'll see this throughout the rest of this chapter that that the law, it held a pretty high standard, but in reality, the righteousness of God was an even higher standard than what they were fulfilling just through the obedience of the law. So what Jesus is doing is he's getting beyond just doing things because it's the rule. And he's saying, let's do this because in our heart, I love God. And he says, be ye holy as I am holy. And out of that sense of wanting to be like God, as God has called me to do, there's a desire to shed yourselves of the things of the world, getting outside of what culture says is acceptable, and saying there is a culture that is within the kingdom of God that can, I can only please Him through that. And I can't truly just please Him by just obeying the letter of the law. It's got to be something of the heart. And that's why in verse 19 and 20, uh, Jesus was, was talking about how conformity and faithfulness to God's moral law is expected. That he's saying, he's saying you, you ought to conform to the law. Now what he's really talking about is, is the morality of, of serving God and the moral laws of God. We'll see that through the crucifixion of Jesus, that he became the ultimate sacrifice and there are there are some of the sacrificial laws and these things that were done away with as Jesus fulfilled them. 
through his own sacrifice. But uh, the moral law of God is expected to be withheld and for us to be faithful to it. In fact, he says uh, that unless your righteousness exceeds, let me read it here in verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a shocking statement. I don't know about you, but that's kind of shocking because the Pharisees, they were all about being the righteous ones. Like that was their, their identity. In fact, the word Pharisee means the called out ones. The ones that they have, uh, they have set themselves aside and it said, it said, we are, uh, you know, we are totally different and separated and, and, and we are righteous and we have all these things. And, and, and in fact, this was, uh, first, uh, they were first called that, uh, in a, in a derogatory manner by the Sadducees, the ones, uh, of the, the, the Jews that they embraced the, the Greek culture and this, uh, you know, this culture that was around them. Uh, and and the Pharisees, uh, you know, were uh, being made fun of or derided for being being so holy and and set apart, and and they took pride in that. They said, you know what? In fact, we're going to dive into that and, and lean into that. And they became even more uh, righteous in their eyes by uh, by by setting out two hundred and forty eight commandments that they saw in the Old Testament. And for them, they took it very seriously that they were going to uphold all 248 of those commandments. And they would even spell them out to, to a, a, a even more degree to where, uh, you know, this is how you uphold this commandment. And they had all these different rules on how you would do that to the point where you had thousands of different uh, laws on which, uh, you know, how to uphold the word of God. They we're a righteous people. But here is what Jesus was saying. It was not that if the Pharisees have 248 commandments and they're righteous by doing that, then you need to be 248 plus 248 more, 10 more. You know, let's, you, you'll be righteous by, by the matter of degree. You, you have 248 and then let's add some things to that. That's not what that's not what Jesus was talking about. It was not talking about you uh, you have you know your the righteousness that you see out in the world, and then then let's go beyond that, you know, by by adding some other things to it. No, Jesus was talking about the fact that the depth of their righteousness was something that was very superficial. It was about just simply obeying the law without having a heart that was right. Their heart was not the right, a righteous heart. That on the inward parts that there were things. And in fact, we will see that there were ways that uh, by upholding the letter of the law, and we'll go through this throughout the rest of this chapter, that by upholding the letter of the law, they tried to stretch the boundaries many in many ways 
The Pharisees, they would, by, they, they, by uh, trying to uphold the law, they, they, they set out you know, all the rules. And what does it mean to uphold this law? And you know, how, how close to the boundary can we get uh, you know, on this one? And you know, how much uh, can we stretch it here? What, what can we do over here to say that we're still upholding the law, but you know, I've stretched it a bit? And Jesus is saying, it's, it's got to be a matter of the heart. So unless your heart is right, unless your, the, the, your heart is more righteous than that of the Pharisees, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. So then Jesus dives in for the rest of this chapter here. He goes through six different, uh, six different things that he says, you have heard it this way, or you have heard it said this, but... I say to you. So what Jesus is doing here is he's presenting not necessarily the culture of the world, but rather just the culture within the church and what's accepted. I say church, talking about the Jewish, the Jewish teaching of that day. You have heard it said this. You have heard that the law says this. But let me present to you what the kingdom culture looks like. Let me present to you what it means to actually be part of the kingdom of God. And it begins here in verse 21. It says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time that thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt be no me shall by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Okay. What Jesus is addressing here is this sixth commandment uh, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Very plain language that came, uh, came from the finger of God even to write this commandment upon the tablets of stone that thou shalt not kill. Now, this obviously does not mean, I say obviously because we see in Scripture, even within just chapters of this commandment, that God gives permission for His people to kill. There's times when He tells them, I want you to go into the inhabitants of, or in, into the land where the inhabitants are pagan people and I want you to destroy them, to kill them, and for you to inhabit the land. So we see God making a concession for war. 
We see also God making concession within, uh, within a few chapters of this commandment here about, uh, if, if somebody were to take the life of one, uh, he says that you ought to take the life of that individual. So we do see that there are times that, that killing was allowed within the law of God. This has been even still a lot of discussion today that within some Christians, you know, whether uh, you have some that are on one extreme, some on the other, uh, some that are very much pacifist and would say war is never accepted, uh, the death penalty is never acceptable, uh, and where on the other hand, you have some that are very much for it, still some, somewhat of a discussion today. And this was a discussion even for the Pharisees. The Pharisees of that day had this discussion, and when what they had come to uh, was this agreement that what this commandment was, uh, was agree or was talking about was, uh, simply murder. It's murder alone is the only thing that this is talking about as far as being sin. And so it's always just the deed that reveals the sin. For them, it was about the deed of murder, the act of murder that would cause somebody to be, to be a sinner. But what Jesus presents is to say, let's forget about the deed and let's go to the very root of that. Where did that start? If you're wanting to define what sin is, do you just go to the very end, end of the line and say, once that person killed somebody else and they murdered them, at that point, they became a sinner? Or, Jesus says, did it start way back here When they were so upset about what that person did and they began scheming all these things in their mind about what they might do in order to get revenge against that person and they go out and they kill them. Jesus is pointing not to the end of the line where the deed was done, but rather he says it starts right back here. Let's get to the root of of this issue that the sin began when the anger began when when unjustified anger or un uh, unrestrained anger came and it was it was there and, and the person harbored that in their mind so Jesus is going beyond the deed and going back to the very beginning of it and saying let's stop it there in the place of the thought and that's a interesting Thing for us to think about. So, thought can be sin. And what is sin? Is the sin merely the action, or can sin be the thought? And Jesus says, "Do not be angry. Do not be angry." Now, He does put the uh, "without cause." Do not be angry without cause. And then he goes on to these other things where he's, uh, where he's mentioning some examples of what this may look like. If you were to call somebody Raka, which uh, for us in our, cult, in our context today, we don't understand necessarily uh, fully what Jesus is saying here when he's mentioning that you might call somebody Raka or you might call somebody a fool, which comes from this uh, Greek word more. Both of those, they seem to be uh, insults that somebody might throw at somebody else. An insult that, uh, that, uh, Raka being empty or an empty headed person or a 
you know, you're, you're just, um, you're a bird brain. You're, you know, you're, you're an empty headed fool. I guess I've kind of, kind of mixed the two there. Raka, being empty. It's an insult to somebody's intelligence. To call somebody a fool was, was not merely just, uh, just calling somebody foolish for something that they would do. Jesus, even himself, called people fools at times. He called the Pharisees fools. We see uh, the disciples uh, calling, uh, in, in some of their uh, epistles, calling the church foolish for some things that they do. So it's not, not just just saying fool you know, to somebody or calling somebody's behavior foolish, but rather it's, it's the insult to somebody's heart or the insult to somebody's character. And he's, what Jesus is really getting to here uh, is, is about the fact that this place of murder, this, and he's, he's going to the extreme there, but he's, going, he's saying this started somewhere else. It started with this place where, uh, where, where you have, uh, have something in your mind where you are unrestrained, angry, un- you're, you're angry at somebody to the point where you're just gonna insult them, you're going to attack their character, you're going to attack their intelligence, you're gonna do these things, and Jesus says, if you do that, then you're right on the path to hell. That's as far as Jesus goes with it. What he's really getting at here with these practical applications of this principle there that we read, verses 23 through 26, where he's, uh, where he's describing what it looks like to worship. And if I were to put this in, in our context today, uh, he gives these two examples. The one is uh, within a church setting. The other is, is within a, a legal setting. And he's, he's saying here, if you're coming to church and you're about ready to worship, but then on the way to church, you realize that somebody else has something against you, then you should do everything that you can to go and make it right with that person before you even come to church and lift up your hands to worship. And then he brings it into the, into the, uh, the world, worldly setting, and he says, if you are on your way to court... And you realize, oh, I owed somebody something. You stop that journey to that court. I know that you had an appointed time that you needed to be there, but you stop and you make a you make a, um, a you know a beeline for that person that you owed, and you make sure that you get things right with them before you settle your debt within the court. See, Jesus, what he's saying here is that in order for you to uh, uh, truly live out this principle, you need to take these things so seriously, the fact of anger and, and, and being uh, insulting to others. Take these things so dangerously that you avoid them at all costs. You may think that going to the, the church to worship is the most important thing that you can do, but Jesus says that's not the most important thing you could do. The most important thing you could do at that moment is to make things right with the one that they're not right with right now in your life. And how often do any of us do that? This is what this, this sermon of, of Jesus, when he's presenting kingdom culture, sometimes it, it, it stabs at us and we say, ah, how many times have I come to church and I have not made things right and yet I'm here and I'm worshiping God. And Jesus says, get things right before 
you come to worship me. Now, this is not to say hold everything up, you know, make sure that every, uh, you know, you're, you're never going to be able to worship worship me. No, no, it's, it's not about that. It's about let's make things right. Let's be serious about making things right with people. Now we talked last week about how there's times when the other party cannot, or they're not going to have it, but everything of your own ability to make things right, do it. See, if we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, then we must take every possible step Every possible positive step to live in peace and love with all men. Amen. I better continue here. Verse 27. Jesus goes into another one of these where he says that you have heard it, that it was said by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offend you, fuck it out. Cast it from thee. For it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of, the, one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus goes from the sixth commandment here now to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And... Within this very plain commandment, again, that comes from, uh, comes from Moses down to them. But the Pharisees, uh, again, they had tried to live out or tried to parse out what does the letter of the law mean? What does it mean for me? How close can I get to that without being a sinner? And for them, they had come to the conclusion that the consummation of adultery itself is what caused sin. But Jesus says, within the kingdom of God, it begins far before that. Long before that. He says, do not look on a woman with lust. That is kingdom culture. Kingdom culture means that every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is also immoral in your look and your thought. The, the, the things that you look at, your thought life, all of that is, is where really the sin begins. And in today's culture right now, where we have access, access plenty to, to look upon somebody with lust. And, and let me just, let me just uh, clear up in case there's any confusion. He is not only talking to men, even though Jesus here is, is addressing this as a gender, uh, in, in, in the matter of gender. This applies beyond gender either way. But if you would look on somebody with lust, if you would look on them, that you are committing adultery with them already in your heart. So this is the question is how do we maintain sexual purity? Jesus is saying here that it's a sin of the heart. You're committing adultery within your heart. And how does it come? It comes through the way of the eyes. That heart adultery is the result of eye adultery. That what happens here in the heart where the sin is, is because the eyes is what brought that in. Now Job, he had a solution for this. This is when Job was defending himself against 
the attacks of, of some of his friends, but uh, you know them calling him a, a sinful man and and Job describing uh, his own righteousness. He said in Job thirty one verse one that I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? He said. I made a covenant with my eyes that, that I would not allow them to wander. I would not allow them to look upon, uh, upon a, a, a young lady and, and to lust after her is, is what Job is getting at here. And he gets down to verse seven in that same chapter. And he says, if my step has turned out of the way in my heart, walked after mine eyes, and if any blot is cleaved to my hands, he's saying here, if if I would allow it, my eyes can lead me astray. If I allow it, my eyes will lead my heart to a place of sin. And here's what Jesus says to do about it. He says, pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. It's pretty extreme, right? He is using... Hyperbolic language when he says this. He is not, uh, he is not uh, in, encouraging self-mutilation. He's not encouraging you uh, to, to do that, although there have been some throughout the ages who, uh, uh, who have done that, uh, taken Jesus very literally. I was reading through some accounts of, of some that, uh, that have done so. And I don't believe at all that that's what Jesus was really talking about. But rather, he was talking about or using that metaphor of, of how seriously we ought to take it. What he's saying is, when pluck out, plucking out your eyes, he says, don't look. Do everything possible within yourself to not look. You see something Turn yourself away. Turn yourself completely around. Do, do everything in your, in, in, that's, that's possible for you to separate yourself from that place of temptation where your eyes were wandering. Do everything that you can. If it's an issue that you have with a computer that is in a certain part of your house, then get rid of the computer in that part of the house. If it's an issue that you have with the cell phone, then, then do everything that you can to, to make sure that there's, there's a, there are things in place where your eye is not going to be tempted by that thing that you keep being tempted by. And here's really what Jesus is saying is, is he says, maim yourself or, or harm yourself. He's, he's saying others, they may notice it. You chop your, your hand off or you gouge your eye out, somebody's going to notice that, right? Uh, what's, what's up with that person? Especially if they get the backstory of like, he did that to himself. What's up, what's up with that person over there? Why, why, why do they not go into that restaurant over there? They said, well, if you really want to know, it's because in the past, every time that I went into there, that's where I would go and I would sit at the bar and I would drink until I drank all my sorrows away. And I don't want to be tempted by that same atmosphere that I used to always put myself in. I say, yeah, but 
you know, can't you just go in there and not, not do that? Yeah, I, I can, but I have chosen to not, to, I've chosen to chop off my foot to not go into that location. And they say, well, that's kind of weird. What? It, it might be weird, but what I'm doing is I'm setting myself apart from that place of temptation. Somebody else may, may ask you, well, you know, why is it that, uh, why is it that you don't have a, uh, you know, why is it that you have a flip phone? Let's say that you struggle with, uh, you struggle with, uh, with pornography and, and you have made the decision to say, for me, I am going to go to the extreme of, ty- of cutting myself off from that, that well that I kept going to. Well, that's really weird. And you may not tell everybody the reason why you did that. But, you know, this is, this is the decision that, that you made. And I'm not saying that everybody who has a flip phone, every guy who does this is why they do it. But, uh, but you, know, the, you know, for you, you say, I'm making this decision to cut off my access to that place of temptation. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. Somebody else may notice it. And this is the whole thing about kingdom culture is it looks different and you're willing to do things that may cause you to stand out. But it's okay because I am doing whatever possible in order to remain righteous and to keep myself from the place of temptation. I want to eliminate the sources of temptation. I will maim myself. I will pluck up my eye or cut off my hand. I'm going to do everything possible to Cut off those places, those sources of temptation. Amen. Let's uh, continue on here in verse number 31 and 32. Jesus says that it has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saying a saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So here Jesus goes uh, uh, to this law, and um, this is actually uh, kind of a, a group of laws. It's not one specific thing uh, within, uh, within the Old Testament. But if we could point to one, it would be in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where uh, in that scripture it does say that when a man has taken a wife and he's married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. What the Pharisees did with that scripture, and I, I don't want to just blame this on the, on the Pharisees themselves. There's actually were two camps of uh, people within that day of the Jews. But the one that seemed to have won over was this uh, taking that scripture there, that law, And um, making this decree from it that divorce is allowed for any cause whatsoever as long as the man thinks that his wife or that he no longer finds favor with his wife. That would extend for them to uh, to to anything and, uh, you know, anything that he might think that, you know, she's she's no longer beautiful in my eyes whatever the man might think. And the Pharisees, uh, what they did was uh, they brought that and said, that's where we're going to draw the line to where now you are allowed to divorce. That basically anything became allowable grounds for divorce as long as the husband said that the woman was no longer favorable in his eyes. What Jesus said 
was that marriage is instituted of God and it's sacred. And if you, we're not going to truly dive fully into this tonight, uh, into this topic, but it, it, there's a much fuller discussion on this topic in Matthew chapter 19 when the Pharisees again come to Jesus wanting to know what his grounds for divorce are. And he goes into it at more length. And what you see within that discussion is that with the, what the Pharisees were preoccupied with was what are the grounds for divorce? But what Jesus was preoccupied with was what is the institution of marriage? And he was, he was, that's more what Jesus was concerned with was, was let's, let's allow marriage to be, uh, you know, to be something that, that we would hold and, and, and that we would, um, do everything possible to, to uphold that, um, to uphold marriage. Again, there's, there's, there's so much that, uh, we could go down and, and tonight's Bible study is not, uh, is not to parse out everything to do with divorce and, and marriage tonight, but this is what Jesus was talking about was let's let the kingdom culture be that marriage is an institute of God and it's a very sacred thing. He goes on in verse 33. And here, maybe something that seems trivial to us, but it says, Again, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, that thou now, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You might ask, you know, what, why is Jesus you know, going down this line of things and you know, keeps on talking about all these things that you might swear by God, you might swear by heaven, you might swear by uh, this or that or Jerusalem or your own head. And the reason that Jesus was doing that is because this is exactly what the Pharisees did. Is that they made these very um, uh, elaborate rules for taking vows. Again, this law uh, here comes from a, a bunch of different uh, teachings and laws from the Old Testament. It's not one in particular. Uh, but, but here, uh, what we do see from the Old Testament is that false swearing or swearing and, and lying, we could say, that lying is an evil thing, but that if you do take an oath to God, then you are required to perform that oath or to complete it. We saw some very foolish oaths that were taken uh, at times in the Old Testament, and people still completed those as they were oaths to God. But what had taken place was these people, uh, the Pharisees had uh, put in very elaborate rules for all these different vows and the w- different ways that you could take a vow. And basically what they had done was there were ways that you could take a vow and you did not have to complete that vow as long as you said the right words. But if you did say the name of the Lord, you contain that within it, then that was a binding vow that you would take. What Jesus presents to them is, hey, let's just cut all this nonsense out and let's just speak truth. Stop with all this having to take a vow for this and having to, to swear upon uh, upon God. He says, in fact, 
You don't have any authority to swear upon God. You don't have any authority to swear upon heaven. You don't even have authority to swear upon yourself in your own head because you can't change the color of your own hair. He says, just keep your word. Just be honest. Let your speech be honest. A.M. Hunter, he, he said uh, in, in a commentary, the oaths arise because men are so often liars. That the reason that somebody was, would say, you know, I, I swear to you this, it's because their own words cannot be, or it's not trustworthy. Their own word isn't, isn't trusted. And so they would say, I swear to you by, by this, or I swear to you by this. And Jesus says, let's just let every bit of communication that we, that we uh, have come out of our mouth be trustworthy information. And so what Jesus is, is bringing to us as the kingdom culture is, is that we are, we're not trying to, uh, you know, to hide things or we're not trying to, uh, to, you know, speak our way out of things or, or try to, you know, you know, get, get ourselves, uh, you know, out of, um, out of promises and, and things that we have, uh, you know, committed to. But no, he's saying, allow yourself to be true in every part of your life. When he says don't swear, what, he's, what he means is, is allow your speech to be honest speech. Be counted upon. Be somebody who can be counted upon. He goes, goes on in verse 38. He says, you have heard that it hath been said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That I, or but I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. The old law said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, revenge is lawful. Now, the way that that was uh, first instituted and uh, meant to be lived out was within the court of law that there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Within the court of law that uh, as, as far as they were judging others uh, when, when a case would be brought, that there was true justice that would be done uh, within that. But what had taken place throughout the years was that they had brought that from the court of law into the personal relationship. And they were seeking revenge in all sorts of ways. Not just, not just within the court of law and the very, you know, things that, that you know, of great importance, but now within the trivial matters. Oh, you, you wronged me here? Oh, let me, let me show you. Oh. You just, you just wait. You've got what's coming for you. And I'm gonna be the, I'm gonna be the one who's, who's gonna bring it to you. And, and, and you have this attitude that was accepted and, and, uh, it was justified in their eyes by the law that it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, and what Jesus is presenting here was very, very countercultural for them. He says, turn your other cheek. You've been wronged. Not only should you not get revenge, turn your other cheek and let's, if they're, they're going to slap the other cheek, that's okay. You're still going to walk away. 
He goes on from that and he says that if somebody asks you to walk a mile with them, and, and what this is referring to was the Roman soldiers of that day, what they could do uh, is, is any Roman soldier within, uh, within Judea, they could ask an individual, an, a citizen, uh, to come and, and to help them get down the road one mile. And by law, you had to help that soldier get down the road one mile. And, uh, and, and you had to do whatever, whatever it took to, to get them down the road. And Jesus is saying here, okay, you see that as the law and you don't like doing that because you do not like assisting the Roman government. But how about you just go out of your way to take them two miles? Oh, and if somebody comes to your house and they're needing something, how about you, uh, they're, they're needing a coat. You not only give them a coat, but let's give them even more than that. What Jesus is, is saying here is, is not, when, when he says, do not resist an evil person, he is not talking about inviting evil upon yourself or participating in evil, but rather what Jesus is, is talking about is do not take revenge. We, within the kingdom of God, do not have the right to take revenge. We do not have the right to take revenge upon others. I don't know for anybody tonight if, if, if any of this stuff that Jesus is presenting here comes and it, it hits you as something that, you know, I need to work on some areas of my life. But there's this, this sermon that Jesus is presenting here. There's still some things in our life that if you are a disciple right now, then there are some, some areas that you might need to ask yourself, am I doing what Jesus has called me to do. And out of all of these, the last one is probably the hardest to live up to. We're going to close with this one here. It's beginning in verse 43. As you have heard that it's been said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, I will just mention right there that that is not found as a law in the Old Testament. You see, love your neighbor. But it says, love thy neighbor as thyself. It never says, and hate thy enemy. But I believe that Jesus, the reason that he was saying this is because that became the culture and the mantra for the people of that day that he was living in. That since the command is simply to love my neighbor, then it must be, okay for me to hate my enemy. And that's what, that's what they live by. Right, let me continue this though. That thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? The publicans he's referencing here uh, would be, uh, in their eyes, the sinners. Don't even the sinners do that? Be therefore... Perfect. And we don't have time to parse out this last scripture here, but he says, Be ye therefore perfect, 
even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let's focus in on that very last uh, discrepancy between the culture of the world or even the culture within the church and what kingdom culture looked like. That for them, it was acceptable to love their neighbor and to hate their enemy. And we see that again, uh, we see that again addressed when Jesus is asked the question at a later time, who is my neighbor? Right? They're, they're wanting to know. We, we know that the law says that I need to love my neighbor as myself. But tell me, who don't I have to love? Who's my neighbor? Because I want to know what the boundary is here. I want to know, you know what? Okay, I know I got to love my neighbor, so just tell me who that's, who that is. Because in my mind, and this is, this was their thoughts, was my neighbor is my countryman. My neighbor is the one who is like me. My neighbor is the one who is, who is a Jew and a good Jew and not a half Jew like those Samaritans. But, I mean, they, they are just like me. That's my neighbor. This was the mindset of the Pharisee. This is the mindset of the people that Jesus is talking to. That I can love them, but I am okay to hate everybody else. I'm okay to treat everybody else like they don't have, you know, they don't get the time of day from me. But Jesus presents to them a brand new paradigm, which is that of the kingdom of God. And he says that there is no room for prejudice or hatred of others within the kingdom of God. We don't see, we don't see the whole discussion here of who my neighbor is, but we do uh, get that later on when Jesus says that the neighbor was the Samaritan who came by and helped the one who was left half dead along the side of the road. Now, the, that didn't fall within the boundaries of the neighbor that they had in mind when Jesus was calling the Samaritan the neighbor. But Jesus is coming here and he's presenting to them not even just loving your neighbor, but love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Pray for him who despitefully uses you. <laughs> this is not easy. This is not easy at all, but I'm talking about the kingdom of God and what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And here's, here's this, the whole reason that I'm diving into this so heavily, uh, within the Sermon on the Mount is that when Jesus is presenting the kingdom culture, what we need to do as disciples right now, I am a disciple of Christ, which means that if I see anything that, that does not align Anything in my life that does not align with what Jesus would present to me as the kingdom culture, then I need to assess some things in my life and to get them straightened out. I need to begin to reassess, you know, am I doing everything that God has called me to do? It's, it, it goes beyond just the new birth. It goes in to living out my life as a disciple of Christ, making everything that uh, doing everything that I can to come and, and to present the kingdom of God to this world that we're living in. 
The kingdom culture. Kingdom culture. Now here's the thing about the kingdom culture. And I'll wrap this up here with this. Is that the kingdom culture is presented to us by decree of the king. Not by democracy. Jesus is king. He's the one that presents it and we don't get any vote on it. You know what? I'm okay with that. Because if we got a vote on it, we'd have all kinds of wild ideas about what it means to live for God. But he says, here, let me just mark it plain for you right here. And to tell you, I know that it's a hard thing to do, but here's the expectation to be perfect. Ooh, I can't do that. What he's saying is, come and do everything that you can within yourself to strive for perfection, to keep on working, to do everything that you can to be more and more like God. Do everything within your power to to become more like Him. Now, the only way that we can do that is by living a life that is in life that uh, is not about the rules, but rather it's about the relationship. And this goes back to the very beginning when he's talking about uh, what the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and we need to be more righteous than them. That means it starts in the heart. It starts right here in the heart. And as long as it's done from the place of the heart, then it's not about getting as close as you can to the rules or to, to, to the line. It's not about stretching the rules and and stretching the boundaries of things, but rather it's about becoming more and more like God. And it's about myself. It's not about looking at others and what are they doing. It's about myself. I'm not comparing myself to the person sitting across the pew from me. I'm not comparing myself to the person in the church across town. I'm not looking at what they're uh, what they think is okay. I'm looking at what is God telling me and what does the Word of God what is it telling me. That's, that's what the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees is all about. Is it comes from the place of the heart. I wonder if we could just stand right now and, and just we're going to close this out in prayer. Believing that God uh, is, is still speaking to us and, and knowing that, that we, if we uh, are, are truly disciples of Christ, that, that we would uh, begin to search out these areas of our life that are trying to stretch the boundary, that are str- trying to go uh, as close as we can and, and begin to, st- to ask ourselves, why am I doing that? I wonder if we could just lift up our hands right now. God, I don't want to be a Pharisee. God, I don't want to be uh, somebody that is just doing this out of the letter of the law, God. But let me begin to live for you, God, out of the uh, out of the love that comes from my heart, God, to to please you, God. Not uh, not just by following the rules, God, but I want to please you, God, by by uh, coming in in a place of of alignment with you. God, so that I can allow the kingdom of God to become present in me. Lord, let us today to take, Lord, the necessary steps, Lord, to present the kingdom culture to this world that we live in. Uh, there is a, a world that is lost and dying, God, and they need a church that will rise up and to show, God, that, that, that there is love, God, true love, God, that is not dependent upon uh, what we get in return, but rather, God, 
God, I love unconditionally. God, I love others. God, to help us, Lord Jesus, to present your love through everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. You are dismissed.